This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with G2 Patel, Chief Product Officer at Box. You know, what are the characteristics you look for in people that that create a level of tenacity and success? And I personally feel like there's three properties that are really, really important. But the most important of all of them is hunger. Mr. Patel is the Chief Product Officer at Box. He leads the company's overall product and platform strategy, driving Box's long-term roadmap and vision for cloud content management in the enterprise. Previously, as Chief Strategy Officer and SVP of Platform at Box, G2 led the creation of the Box Platform Business Unit, overseeing product strategy, marketing, and the developer relations. He grew the team from a budding product to a revenue-generating business line and key element on Box's overall suite of offerings. He also led the corporate development and M&A strategy, as well as Box for Industries. G2, thanks for joining. Really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, absolutely. So before diving into your experience, we'd like to pause for just a moment and get to know your perspective, your why. So G2, what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? You know, the thing that drives me more than virtually anything else is I'm very motivated by impact. And typically, I like impact at very large scale. So my ideal when I look back at my, you know, I have a seven year old daughter. And in the next 20 years, when I look back and talk to her about it, what I'd like to do is ideally have a body of work that I've done that's impacted hundreds of millions of people, you know, improved lives in some ways, whether they be professionally or personally. Uh, through a body of work that I've done. And so I'm very, very driven by impact over all else. You know, like some people are driven by recognition, some by financial rewards, some by hard problems to solve. I'm typically driven by impact. It's really cool. And how are you measuring that? Or is it just kind of a general sense of, of impact? The way to measure it, I think, is we, at least at Box, it's pretty easy because if you look at our business, there's a fair number of it, you know, kind of knowledge workers in the world, north of you know, 450, 500 million. And you know, if you think about most people, they spend more time at work than any other single activity that they do in a given day. And our mission is to really make sure that their lives at work get better. There's less friction in that day, and that they they're more productive, and they can get more done, and they can get their dreams accomplished, and all that when they're at work, and uh, ideally through a small part because of our technology. So, you know, and my goal over here, it's pretty easy to measure, is if we can get to a very very broad reach and distribution with our product that has very high active use and delight that's associated with it, then you've succeeded. If not, then you try again. And so I can't imagine as a ten year old you're sitting there thinking about impacting hundreds of millions of people's lives through software. So, you know, what created this purpose-driven goal of yours? No, at 10, I actually had a very different priority, and it was just candy wherever you go. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> it's like the things have changed since uh, I was 10. But, you know, I, I grew up in India. I came here when I was 19. Uh, our family had gone through some hard times, and, you know, I grew up pretty wealthy, but then literally like we lost most of our wealth. And when I came here, my mother was still in India and I had to make sure that I, I figured out a way to earn a living pretty quickly so that I could take care of her. And 
it became pretty obvious that you had to get on your two feet pretty quickly. And America is one of these kind of magical places where regardless of where you come from or what your background is or who you know, you can, you know, afford to dream big. And as long as you've got the right work ethic, aptitude, and a little bit of luck, you can tend to make a lot of forward progress. And so when I moved here, like that was basically, there was a mission, which was how do I get self-sufficient? How do I go out and do something? And then as you started learning more about business, you found that, oh, uh, it's actually pretty, I was pretty fortunate early on to actually have some great mentors in my life. There are these magical moments that you have when you're a younger kid and you don't always know what you're going to do with the level of clarity, but then uh, there are times when you realize that, huh, I did pretty well over here. And if I just put my mind to something, I can tend to do anything pretty well. And I think when that light bulb goes off, like there's a, the world of possibilities opens up for you because it's just a matter of, oh, now I can decide to do anything I want to do. And as long as I want it badly enough, I'll go get it. I was fortunate enough to have that realization early in my life uh, when I came here because of a few great mentors. One of them was one of my professors. One of them was an individual that had taken a liking to me that eventually, who was a banker, and then eventually gave me a loan for starting the first company that I started. And so uh, there's a lot of timing and placement and luck that plays into uh, all of this. And I think I was just very lucky in the earlier years. That's awesome. I love that. Just like this idea of ascending and then how, you know, you had to support your mom and that the mission that that created for you. Yeah. Failure wasn't an option because you had to, and in India, like I, I was, I'm the only child that was really close to my mom. And it's like, what are you going to do? We just have to make ends meet because I had to bring her to America at some point. And in fact, it was interesting because for seven years, she's my best friend. And for seven years, I didn't get a chance to see her. She was in India and I was over here. And so there was, there was this intrinsic built-in motivator to keep working hard so that you can actually get to a place where you could bring her over. And so then how does that background influence how you approach your job today? Or is there something unique about your upbringing and your background that influences the way you approach the job today? There's a few things that I feel like are pretty important. And we look for these even people when we look for that at box. But, you know, what are the characteristics you look for in people that, that create a level of tenacity and success? And I personally feel like there's three properties that are really, really important. But the most important of all of them is hunger. In fact, that's the thing I worry about the most for my seven-year-old daughter because we're very fortunate to be pretty comfortable right now. We live a good life. And when you go through natural hardships in life, hunger comes automatically because, you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, you, you don't have food on the table. Like literally, there's a whole lot else that just goes out the window. And all you think about is how do you put food on the table? And so I was just naturally around 19, 20, I had gotten really hungry because the circumstances in life had just made me hungry. And so hung, I think hunger is the first one. The second one I think is you have to have a degree of curiosity about how things work in in the world and how, you know, Steve Jobs had this great saying, right? Like the moment you figure out that everything that's built around you is built by people just like you, you can actually feel free to you know, challenge the status quo and think it's okay to challenge it and question why something is the way it is. So curiosity is the second one that I feel, you know, is super important. And then the third one it tends to be kind of 
this ability to, you know, great leaders tend to be simplifiers and they distill down to things which to its core essence. And those three things are the ones that I look for the most in people that I hire is, you know, are they hungry? Are they curious? And are they of, um, do they have clear thinking? And can they distill it down to moments of clarity, which actually create a tremendous amount of inspiration for people when you articulate something with a level of simplicity and clarity? That's really big, I think. And these three absolutely resonate with me. So I just want to reiterate hunger, curiosity, and simplifying, being able to simplify. And so now with this, there's box and Dropbox and, and people there, they are not the same thing. <laughs> so for those that may not know what box is, can you give us a quick description of who you guys are and what you do? So we are a um, cloud content management company is the way we like to call it, where we fundamentally, our mission is to really power the way that the world works together. And how do people get more productive at work? How do they, everything we do is around content. How do you manage content, have content participate in business workflows? How do you share content? How do you collaborate around content? How do you secure your content? How do you get value from your content? All of those pieces are things that we do by providing a platform for content management uh, in the cloud. You know, that's what we've been doing for the past decade. The, but the way that the business started is the founders actually started this business because they found this problem, which was it was really hard to take big, large files and transfer them from one person to the other as they were working on projects. And it was just like a lot of kooky stuff that people did where they had to email an attachment, but the attachment had size limits, so then they would FTP it, but FTPing it was very difficult, so they'd put it on a USB stick, but that wasn't as portable. So what they decided to do was say, wouldn't it be nice if we had a system in the cloud that could allow people to just seamlessly share and collaborate with content? And that's how we started the business. And then over time, you know, in the first 12, 18 months or something, they realized very astutely at that time, I wasn't part of the team then, but they realized that, hey, this is great, but, you know, the money is being made in the enterprise and we need to make sure that we make a hard pivot to the enterprise. So very early on, about 11 years ago, they decided to move to the enterprise. And in the enterprise, there was a fair amount of demand for, you know, we need to not only have these productivity capabilities for sharing and collaborating and accessing content and storing content, but we also need to make sure that you have security and governance and compliance capabilities so I can protect my content and secure it and make sure I can have compliance and, you know, apply it to the content and have policies that the content can have consistently applied to. And so we started building that. And over the course of the past eight, nine years, we've been very heavily building that. And then came, oh, now that we've actually got this tremendous collaborative platform, as well as capabilities for securing the content, what do you do to make sure that that's also extensible, not just to users, which we have tens of millions of users using our product, but also in addition to the users, also developers that can build very sophisticated applications with us. And so we built out a platform. So that, that was the continuum of who we are. But if you think about our, at our core essence, we help people work more effectively with content so that they can get the job done in a more efficient way than what they would have done without us. And so this evolution to this platform approach and allowing developers to have access and, and make it more accessible for users... Back when you joined in, in 2015 as SVP of platform and chief strategy officer, you know, what were some of the early challenges with the platform when initially joining? We had always been kind of an open system with APIs where back in 2008, we'd realized that, hey, 
one of our philosophies was people should, regardless of the application that people are working in, they should be able to work with content and box. And so we had opened up our APIs back in 2008 for integrations, and we had over 50% of our API volume, which is today, but back then it was a little lower. But we had a large percentage of our API volume that was actually being that was actually from third-party applications. And so we had a couple thousand integrations that we had made with all different kind of startup vendors and large companies alike who had integrated with Box. That was back in 2008. But what we found out was, even though we'd done that, now customers are asking, saying, hey, I love your product. I'm using it. We have actually deployed it enterprise-wide. But there's, this isn't the only place that we store content. In fact, there's a bunch of line of business applications that I've built out. There's a bunch of internal applications and external customer-facing applications that I'm building out. And each one of those has their own kind of separate silo for content. And would it be possible for you folks to provide us the capability? Because content management is an essential part of our business, but not something that's core to our differentiation. So would you be able to provide us a capability to white label box into our custom applications that we build out because I want to make sure that the front face of my application is still unmistakably with my brand as a customer, but I want to have all the capabilities that box has. And so we started thinking about that and we, you know, after I came on board, we, we, we launched a product called box platform, which essentially was the ability to take all of our APIs, make them available as restful services on top of which Box was built and say, you can now white label Box into any application. So if you wanted to go out and have, you know, sophisticated capabilities that we have in Box in your custom applications, you could do that. And we went ahead and did that piece um, and launched that product. And a couple of years later, it's one of our really high growth kind of, you know, contributors in the business. And it's, it's really done well. So and I think we have a formula for how to take ideas and convert them from idea to product to scale product that's actually working rather well internally. So we now have, we are a you know distinctly a multi-product company. That was one example I gave you where you take a problem that's pretty uh, acute to customers and then you figure out a solution that's going to be pretty differentiated in the market. Once you figure out that solution, you can literally have people... Um, you know, millions of people start to use it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I would love to unpack this a little bit, this uh, formula that you, that you just mentioned, the idea to product, to scale product. So what is unique about that and, you know, what you've experienced in your past and companies before this that, that you feel Box has a formula around? We have a three-phase approach that we take on this. The first phase is where we actually incubate an idea. And the goal during that phase is to not confuse it with anything else besides give it enough time to incubate identify firstly you have to identify a problem that's big enough once you've identified a problem that's big enough you have to make sure that your solution is meaningfully differentiated in the market so don't have a solution that's 20 percent better than what someone else has if you don't have a solution that's 10 times better we call it a 10x rule if it's not if, if it's not at least 10x better than what's available in the market chances of people moving to that solution are pretty slim and once you've built that solution that's 10x better than the market for a problem that's a really potent problem then you maniacally focus on getting to product market fit so that's the first phase once you get to product market fit the second phase is identify a repeatable kind of selling motion, like who are you going to sell it to? Is it a repeatable use case? You're not just selling snowflakes where every single person's buying something that's slightly different. Mm -hmm. Once you get a repeatable selling motion, 
then you start to scale. So you know, one of our cardinal kind of rules that we use internally, very counterintuitive, is got to start by doing things first that don't scale so that you can sustainably scale. Yeah, that happens in the first phase. In fact, we have this kind of approach that we use where we have this notion called the F10 customers, flagship 10 customers for any product that we launch. And the flagship 10 customers, that we, we like to think about it as that's going to be a very non-scalable process. And what I mean by that is launch a product where 10 of your flagship customers are wildly successful with that product. And if that means that you have to literally fly out an engineer to sit with the customer for two weeks, so that they can be successful with that product, then you would do that, which is not going to have millions of users. But if the theory behind it is, if you can have something in a, in a non-scalable way, be something that customers love, there's zero chance that customers are going to love it when you try to scale it. So don't try to scale something prematurely. First, get to product market fit, get those flagship 10 customers identified and successful, then get a repeatable selling motion that says, how do you repeatably and systematically sell this in a way that's at, at scale? And then once you've identified that you can sell this in a repeatable manner to the right economic buyers with the right kind of value proposition and the right problem, and you've identified the repeatability in the motion, then start to um, you know scale it and pour money uh, like it's going out of style. But don't do it until then. And up, up until you get to phase three, scarcity is your best friend. In fact, you don't want to have teams that are too long. You don't want to overfund teams prior to that because all people do then is they spend their time spending the, spending the money rather than actually getting the product market fit. There is so much value in that. And there's so many gold nuggets. So I want to try to reiterate. And then G2, I might have to have you jump in and reiterate with me. We have three phases here. And this phase one, uh, identify a problem that is big enough to solve. And then is it a meaningful solution? Is it 10x, right? Yes. And then product market fit and find those, those F10, those, those 10 clients that are, how did you phrase that? We call it the flagship 10 customers. Flagship 10 customers, yes, okay. And then that second phase, is it a repeatable selling motion? And with these phase one and two, really focusing on the scarcity, not investing, not over-investing, right? It's more of a, a proof of concept. It's in that incubation period. And then once you have found that product market fit, you've found the meaningful solution, you've made it repeatable so that it can be sold. Then you can focus on scaling it and, and investing into it. Is there anything I missed there? No, you, you got it right. And it's the thing that I would probably say in the first phase when you say identify a big problem, one of the things we found is the quality of the problem that you end up picking is directly proportionate to the success you're going to have in solving that problem. And that's very counterintuitive. So the, what I'm saying is the harder the problem, the higher the likelihood that you will succeed, which is completely counterintuitive. And the reason for that is because the quality of the problem you pick is typically directly proportionate to the caliber of talent that you attract to that team. And the harder the problem, the more qualified the talent that's attracted to the team. And we all know that when you attract great people to a team for a mission, then great outcomes come from it. And so it's extremely important to pick hard problems where you can have a 10x solution, attract the right people so that you can get to product market fit, and then everything else from there happens. And then you want to make sure that during that phase, 
you're really keeping the budget tight because what they have to do is get to product market fit before they run out of dough. And we literally operate this like a startup when you have an incubation product because if you don't do that and if you kind of give them a lot of plush resources, what ends up happening is the energy gets dissipated and spending money on things that don't need to be spent. Uh, otherwise, they actually get really creative on what they need to do with a scarce model. I mean, how do you know if you have the right talent, though? What we typically try to do on talent is you have to have a good mix of people that have the right experience and have the right potential. You can't always have people that are only over-indexed on experience because, you know, there's a great podcast I listened to recently by Barry Diller, and he was talking about one of the things that he's found to be successful. And this is so true. It's so well articulated. We all do this, but he's articulated so well, which is as you get more experience, one of the things that becomes a liability is oftentimes you get overly prejudiced in your views and your experience of your past. And so a lot of your time has to be spent if you want to be effective on an ongoing basis in unlearning the patterns that you've learned in the past. That's the thing that we have to have is that we need to make sure that we are hiring people that are extremely capable and have experience in the right areas, but don't over-index on experience only because there are times when you actually need fresh thinking because sometimes fresh thinking can challenge the status quo much more so than someone who's been tainted who thinks that that's the only way that it works. So you, you have to have enough tension in the system with someone who has seen the pattern before and someone who is willing to question everything. And that combination of that team is pretty important. The other thing that we try to do in a team is make sure that we keep the size of the team really, really small. And, you know, Amazon has this great saying, two pizza teams. Uh, they've worked really well for us as well, where, you know, but the theory behind two pizza teams is you should have a team that's no larger than can be fed with two pizzas. And the reason for that is the moment you get teams very large, and this actually gets to be a problem the larger you get as a company, where all of a sudden you've got these teams with 25, 30, 40, 50, 70, 100 people. And all they're doing is spending their time coordinating with each other. But the best work gets done when you actually have a small team that's really kind of looking out of each other's backs and knows each other's strengths and weaknesses. And they don't spend a whole lot of time in just coordination efforts and are spending a lot of time in getting the work done. So we feel like, you know, make sure that you have a very small atomic team that, that has a lot of autonomy for making decisions, have the right level of emphasis on um, a balance between experience and potential, and make sure that you've also got the right level of kind of infusion of, you know, like the teams have to have diverse backgrounds and diverse skills. So like one of the things we do is really try to focus diversity at the, the team level rather than at the aggregate company level. Because the reality is that at the team level, if you can actually infuse very different thoughts and the very backgrounds, then you don't have a lot of group think that happens because people just come from very different starting points and they can challenge each other in a very uh, you know productive manner. So you get those things in place typically for really hard problems and you assemble good teams. And then, like I said earlier, the single most important thing that you need to have is hunger. If you've got the right level of hunger, you can move mountains. Man, that's so great. Experience, a good mix of experience and potential. And I may have missed this, but when you refer to potential, are you talking about the ability to challenge the status quo or, or is that part of the experience? I, I think just like, you know, really smart people that might have not quite had all the experience 
and the stripes on them, but they they're still very committed to a problem space. And you know, and by the way, the thing is, is you might have an individual that is a perfect fit for one team that actually is not a good fit for another team because the problem might not be something that that they relate to at a very kind of personal level. And I think it's really important to make sure that when you have people that are coming in, like you, you get folks that are in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with the solution. Fall in love with the problem and try to fix the problem because the solutions will keep evolving over time. But, you know, you want to make sure that you really anchor in on the problem and make sure that that problem is a large problem that you can fix over a multi-year period and then be able to deeply understand the problem so that you can challenge every single assumption being made around the problem around the solutions that that, that might exist and say this doesn't make sense we probably ought to think about this differently and it's really cool and this experience and potential balance is really resonating with me for some reason I, I think it just so closely resembles the idea of art and science you know experience being the science but then the potential being this almost woo-woo where it's like it's this feeling that i have it's this passion this person has it's something that's not really quantifiable, but it's going to be there to really elevate the potential of this. I'll give you a personal example, if you don't mind, and yeah. just kind of digress for a moment. But I was recently in uh, India, and I'd gone back to India after a very long time period. And I met with you know some of my family members there, and their kids that had, I had never seen, I'd never met them before. They're like in their mid-20s. I'd never met them before, but I, I met this one girl, Ami who's like 22, she and her two sisters, she, she's a middle child, she has an older sister, 26, younger sister who's 17. These are my first cousin's kids. I mean, they have a pretty tough life. They like three kids, parents and the grandparent, all, all six of them live in a 450 square foot home or something, like pretty small home. I, I could, can't even tell you on how inspirational it was meeting her because she had this spark and her light in her eye that I'm just going to go out and change the world. And she had a pretty tough life. And her parents said, you know, put her through school and raised all the kids pretty well. But she was like, hungry as ever to go out and do well. And she, as soon as I came back, like a few days later, she sent me this picture of an award that she won within her company. She works at a venture investment firm as a research analyst doing AI and ML work. And around big data and all of that stuff. And it, it was actually pretty amazing to see that someone that young had, uh, without any kind of professional background or any access to all of the things that you and I might have access to on an ongoing basis, had just gone out and completely, you know, done such an amazing job in her, in her company and had started winning awards. And she's, I think she would probably end up being someone who's remarkably successful in her career. And the reason I bring this story up is, Meeting people like that is massively inspirational because you can draw your energy from them. And one of the things that she will constantly do is she'll probably constantly challenge the status quo and why are things the way that they are. And she'll kind of, you know, poke holes in different areas. And I think it's tapping into that talent and making sure that that talent surfaces up is extremely important to have in building our teams. And I think you can have a good mix of that with some good mentors and people that have seen pattern recognition before that have good chemistry among each other, like magic can start happening. I mean, I'm, I'm just feeling inspired by the story. I'm one of those people where if you surround me with those type of people, I immediately elevate my game. And I can totally see like by having that as part of the chemistry in, in these, these quote unquote startup ideas, right? It's going to just get the whole team energized around that, solving that problem. Yeah. And what's amazing about 
when you're young and you you've not seen as much is there's a natural level of humility that exists. Like, so she kept thanking me saying, Oh, this is so inspirational. Thank you for, you know, like I, I gave them some articles to read and some things. And she's like, Oh, thank you for taking the time. I'm like, you have no idea. Like I, I get more out of interacting with you than you'll ever get out of interacting with me because it's just like, it energizes me. And it's, it's actually just great to see, you know, good talent start to come up in different parts of the world. Now it's not just concentrated in certain geographies. You're starting to see it all over the world because the internet's made the world a smaller place. So it's, it's really cool to see that. So we've covered some really cool frameworks, I think, with what you've experienced and what you're applying at Box. And I think some really cool methodologies. And so I'd like to spend some time in really drilling deep into one specific mobile product and seeing if we can make some tangible connections to some of this conversation so, so far. Obviously, there's an app for Box, and I think it's a, it's a pretty juicy mobile experience. And so I'd love to hear from point of view, G2, what you know, the main value prop of this mobile app is and, and really how it differentiates from you know, the web experience. Yeah, I mean, the way that we think about our experiences that we create is the value is in making sure that we have a level of continuity across different modalities so that regardless of where a user is, they can pick up where they left off with each modality having a very unique value proposition that it delivers. What you, we don't try to do is replicate functionality to be exactly the same across modalities. But what we do try to do is make sure that there are certain things that are going to be web first, and there are certain things that are going to be mobile first, and there are certain things that are going to be desktop first. And we will make sure that we optimize the experiences for the specific modality that we are trying to go out and deliver an experience to the customer. One of the cardinal rules we've used in our business is you have to make sure that you you are identifying some of the key mega trends that are going on around you and ensure that those mega trends are acting as a tailwind to your business that can propel you further rather than acting as a headwind that you're fighting against. And this is a really important point because most companies sometimes see disruptive mega trends as being threatening to their business and as a result they fight it. And when you fight something whose time has come, like, you know, Victor, you guys, is great saying, like, you can't stop something whose time has come. You literally have to make sure that you're using that as a tailwind and you're riding that wave because all ships rise with a rising tide kind of thing. And we had a couple of these megatrends early on in our business, which was with mobile and, uh, and cloud. And specifically, the potency of the, of the combination of that megatrend of combining mobile and cloud had meaningful implications. And that actually propelled our business forward quite dramatically. And we now enjoy half a billion in revenue growing at 25 to 30% you know, growth rates and, and a very, very loyal customer base with less than 3.5% churn. No big deal, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like it's, the, the metrics of the business are just staggering. Right? Yeah. And the reason for identifying those tailwinds is you have to make sure you catch them at the right time and then make sure that you've completely taken advantage of them. So when we first had mobile, like we wanted to be the first ones on day one that actually launched an app on, on Android and all of those pieces. And up to now, like whenever our partners like Apple or Google say, go out and build something for our platforms, like we will drop everything and make sure that that happens because there is a tremendous value to the business of just being on the, at the forefront of innovation when that's happening. But you're now starting to see another major tailwind emerge 
as a mega trend uh, in our business, which is machine learning and AI and artificial intelligence and just the overall intelligence strategy. And we're doing something very similar with that, which is putting a huge amount of emphasis on these things that tend to be industry shaping megatrends. And how do we use that to just act as a tremendous tailwind to propel our business forward? And on mobile specifically, you know, what we've done is made sure that we have a huge amount of emphasis on saying, what is mobile really, really good at? And let's not clutter mobile with everything that you can do on the web. But there are things that people want to do unmistakably when they're in mobile. But we have to make sure that we provide them a really frictionless way to do that. That that's how we kind of think about mobile is, you know, there are going to be certain things that they'll never do on the web or on the desktop. They'll only want to do it on mobile. And so those features need to be only on mobile or, or there'll be some features that are mobile only. There are some features that are going to be mobile first. And then there's some features which might be parity features. But what we try not to do is go out and tie it all together into a single set of features across every modality, because I just don't think that works. The second thing that I think is really important is it's really important to understand the class of users and the kind of use cases that they're going to be using you for. And how do you go out and encourage active use? And how do you encourage the product managers really deeply thinking about the value they're going to deliver to their users when they actually use the product? And one of the ways we think about that is break out the users into two distinct categories. The first category is what we call power users. And power users tend to be ones that are using Box on a pretty regular basis and they want to, I, for example, consider myself a power user on mobile because I, I spend most of my time on my mobile phone and most of the documents I review and open up are on my phone that I do it while I'm on the move or something of that sort or in my conference room and I'm too lazy to open up my computer so I just do it on my, my phone. And you know, so there's a class of features that someone like me is going to want. And then there's this whole notion of you need to get to all of the other people that don't come to your product on a daily basis or a weekly basis or monthly basis and say, how can you encourage them to come? And those are what we classify, and Alex Schultz calls this really eloquently, he calls them the marginal user. Marginal user, as in they, they're occasional users. They don't come that frequently to your product. And how can you go out and build capabilities for the marginal user, which typically tend to be very different set of features than the ones that you would build for the power user? Now, here's the flaw in the, the reality and the practicality of the issue is most product managers tend to over-index towards power users. But when you need to go out and drive growth of usage, where you want to have millions and millions of users using it, and you want to make sure that your retention curve looks pretty good, and you want to make sure that you have a good top of funnel acquisition model, if you don't focus on the marginal user, you're not going to go out and really drive growth. And you have to deeply understand what the marginal user wants and how that might be very, very different from what a power user might want. And you always have to make trade-off exercises between those two. But when you're going out and trying to get to product market fit, you have to focus maniacally on the, on, on the power user. Once you get past product market fit, and if you want to really grow your user base, you need to make sure that there's a heavy emphasis placed on the marginal user and the way that you build out the capabilities. And that is something that's pretty important to do and be very data-driven in the way that you're actually thinking about the product. So with engaging that marginal user, is, is that more of a tight collaboration with marketing as well? Or are you saying that it is something that can be more within the, the product manager's realm 
of capability. Yeah, it's actually in the product manager's realm. And we have another team that we use internally called the growth team. And that's actually in, in the product. And Facebook growth team sits separate from product. And our, our team, you know, we have growth team in the product. And what we try to do over there is make sure that the growth team is really trying to go out and iterate on the small improvements that can make a big difference in behavior and how someone would come back to your product and keep coming back to your product. And you deeply understand why they're coming back to you. What are the drops in the flow? When are they coming back to you? When are they actually not seeing the same level of usage when you change something? How can you go out and surface certain features in a better way? So we actually have a good partnership between the growth team and the product management team when it comes to specifically the marginal user getting attracted you know, as we go through it. And then what we do is we, in certain categories, we do a lot of A-B testing. I mean, this is insane, right? I mean, you guys are at such a scale increasing by 25, 30%. And this is how it's done, right? You, you have these, this multidisciplinary approach to doing this and you, you're splitting these out to these different expertises. And then they have a, a really acute focus on specific drivers for the app. Yeah. And it, what it does is it gives you a tremendous level of kind of clarity on what class of users find what challenges are bottlenecking in what areas and what do you need to do to make sure that you take out the friction points for those class of users. And, you know, we actually do a lot of cohort analysis on that front. So like it's, it's pretty, I, one of the things that we've constructed, which is a pretty powerful thing, and we're doing more and more of this and more and more teams is this kind of notion of, we call it the, we have a code name for it called Peapod. And Peapod basically is, if you look at P-E-A-P-O-D, those are six different roles that actually comprise of a team. And there might be multiple people within a certain role, but you know, the first P is for product manager, E is for engineering, A is for analytics. Uh, the other P is for program management, uh, because not always is a great product manager, a good program manager. So we try to separate those out because there's three humans that are creative and organized, but the rest of the people might not be that way. You know, and then O for online growth and D for design. And when you actually think about that as an atomic pod, then they can really start owning their own destiny and have a local mission and then get, be very chartered with a single metric. And one of the things I tell people is, you know, as you get big as a company, you will have many priorities at the top level. Like people always say, well, have a few priorities. The reality is in a big company, $500 million in scale, a billion dollars, two billion, five billion, ten billion, you're not going to have one priority. You're going to have multiple priorities as a company at the top level. However, for every team, you should have no more than one or two priorities. And so have a very clear local mission and one or two priorities and a key metric that the team is held accountable to. And what that does is brings a lot of clarity to the team on what to execute on and what not to. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing this theme of, of specialization and organization. And I mean, you've mentioned several acronym framework methodologies and for a company at this scale to be having this growth like there has to be some formulaic engine driving this forward and so i, I think that's just something to, to step back and, and really just realize like that's what's causing a lot of these changes yeah and we're constantly learning and improving and adjusting as we're going through design but by no means have we figured it all out like we make a lot of stupid mistakes right but as we make the mistakes, like we have to make sure that we course correct and adjust and go back and keep a mental catalog and keep a catalog that says, let's not make the same mistake twice. And sometimes you'll make the same mistake twice or three times or four times. It's just in different forms. But if you try to get teams configured in the right way with the right mission, right clarity, 
and make sure that you're treating the products as they go through the different phases of maturity in different ways rather than treating everything in one swath, you tend to save yourself a lot of time that you would otherwise waste. And I'd say we are probably about 50% of the way there. Like we still have a lot that we can improve on. So GT, what is one of the coolest things you're working on right now that you want everyone to check out? So we are doing some really cool stuff with machine learning. And just give you an example of um, some of this. So if you think about content management in the past 20 years, there's certain things that actually haven't changed that much in the past 20 years, which is you have a file that sits in a folder that might sit in another parent folder and there's kind of a nesting of folders and you, when you want to search for something, you can either browse for a document or if the corpus has gotten too big, then you would go out and search for a document, but you still have to know what you're searching for. But that's kind of where it stops. And that's how, that's how most people work with files over the course of the past 20 years. And one of the things that people have done to kind of alleviate some of this problem is, you know, content management systems came about where they would have metadata associated with content. So you might now have descriptors on content in the form of metadata, which are fields with data that are associated to a file. And the way that people put metadata against content is you actually have manual data entry that's done. Someone's looking at a file and then putting metadata on it. What's the description of the file? What is the date that the file was created, which might be a system-generated field of metadata? What are the topics or keywords that you might want to think of, so on and so forth? What we envision is a world in the next five years that will be completely different from the way it was in the past 50, where rather than going out manually populating metadata, wouldn't it be nice if a system had a machine learning algorithm that could be applied to content and automatically detect metadata. So for, I'll give you three examples we're working on, which are super cool right now. One of them is audio files, video files, and image files. Imagine an image file where you actually had automatic object detection of what's in an image. Oh, there is a tennis racket and a New Balance pair of shoes and a tennis ball and a green background in this image. And rather than me having to punch all that metadata in, the machine learning algorithm detects all of that and automatically populates the metadata. So you now basically search for all your digital assets in a marketing team that says, show me all the commercials that I have in still photography where I have a tennis racket with a male with New Balance shoes. And boom, it's going to show you all the pictures. And you didn't have to do anything for it. You didn't have to classify the image, nothing. Similar example we have in audio where literally a call center, you could be recording every single call as a customer. Um, the, the customer could choose to record every single call that their call center reps are making. And then they run it through a machine learning algorithm for the, with us. And you can detect what the sentiment is of the conversation when people are saying certain things in the call center and how are customers reacting to it when they say certain things. And you could train your people in a very, very specific way. So it completely changes how you could train at mass hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people in a call center to go out and say certain things because you can now look at patterns and say, you know, when my reps say these things, customers get pissed off. And so we should train our reps not to say those things. Similar with video, you can actually have facial recognition that's done in video on different frames. Frame by frame, you know exactly what was said by whom and what frame. And rather than watching a video in a linear manner from beginning to end, you could now say, show me specifically where Jordan was presenting and talked about machine learning related to Box in this keynote that he was presenting in. 
and you could go exactly to that frame. And that's all done without any kind of manual effort of tagging. You just kind of run the machine learning algorithm against it. And what we've done is we've actually taken all the major machine learning algorithms from all the major vendors who spend billions of dollars, IBM Watson, Google with Google, Google's ML API, Microsoft, and we basically applied those to our content and given our customers the choice to explicitly opt in and say, you know what, I want to apply machine learning to my content from IBM in this particular use case. I'm going to turn that on. I'm going to point it to a folder and boom, before you know it, they've had a tremendous amount of intelligence they can mine from the content. And what that does for us is what we want to deliver as an ultimate promise is a piece of content when it's inbox is infinitely more valuable for the customer rather than that same piece of content when it's outside a box. And we're delivering this through machine learning, which is acting as a tremendous tailwind for us right now with all the innovation of billions of dollars happening. We're just taking advantage of all of that and applying it to box content. So that's probably one of the super exciting things that we're working on that'll eventually kind of make its way into every every product and modality we have. That's amazing. I mean, it just seems like we're so many years in the future. And speaking of challenging the status quo, just thinking in the box and you know, creating all these really cool, really cool use cases. So where should we go to keep tabs on these updates and, and these new features that are gonna be coming out? A couple of places. One is you can definitely go to box.com, which is our website. We have an annual conference that uh, is happening in August this year called BoxWorks, where you typically have a lot of industry experts and professionals come and talk. Last year, we had people like Neil deGrasse Tyson that come there and you know Kevin Scott, who's the CTO at Microsoft, I did a fireside chat with, and you had Jeff Immelt and um, some amazing names. So come to the conference. It's in August this year. And then the third one is you can follow me on Twitter, I'm at jpatel41. You can follow Aaron Levy, who is our boss, who is far funnier than I am <laughs> on Twitter. At, um, I forget what his handle is, A. Levy or something, but he's got like a gazillion followers. Really entertaining guy. And just overall, I think, track us on social media. But more important than anything else is, you know, give us feedback when you like something. Give us feedback if you want us to improve. We're constantly, I mean, we figured everything out. And this is a constant game of trial and error. All right, there you have it. Box.com and then at jpatel41 on Twitter to get right to G2 and ask him questions, leave some feedback. All these will be in the show notes for easy access. Also, make sure to tune in this Friday for a rapid fire round where G2 is going to be sharing some of his most valuable resources. Well, G2, thanks for sharing that and being transparent with us. And thanks for all of the value in, in the episode today and taking the time to really let us look under the hood and provide some of these really amazing frameworks and, and methodologies. So, you know, again, thanks for taking the time. It was a pleasure. Jordan, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for listening. For additional resources on how to increase sales and performance with your mobile experiences, head over to www.emergemobilefirst.com and select the Get Free Resources button there at the top and gain instant exclusive access to tools and resources from all of our guests aggregated into one single place just for you. Now, I'm looking forward to digging in with my next guest, but until next time, think mobile first. Oh, 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 o